coming up on this special anniversary episode of Omnivore, the promise and pitfalls of regenerative agriculture, revisiting our conversation with food safety expert Theo Morell, and an inside look at the Innovative Genomics Institute. It's the best of Omnivore from the editors of Food Technology Magazine and the Institute of Food Technologists. This episode of Omnivore is brought to you by IFT's new Product Development Bootcamp, a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Learn more at ift.org bootcamp. Welcome to Omnivore from IFT and Food Technology where we're celebrating our first anniversary with a look back at some of our most popular segments of 2023. I'm your host, Bill McDowell. Last March, Food Technology kicked off a four-part series examining how farmers, producers, and processors across the food system are actively trying to cut greenhouse gas emissions. That effort begins on the ground with regenerative agriculture practices. Food Technology's Deputy Managing Editor, Kelly Hensel, spoke with Dr. Elizabeth Rieke at the Soil Health Institute about best practices, emerging technologies, and remaining hurdles to keep the agriculture sector on the path to net zero. So in the article, you stated that soil health is the foundation for regenerative agriculture. And I was hoping you could talk to me a little bit more about this. Do regenerative agriculture practices, by their very definition, improve soil health? Sure. I mean, I think region ag practices all have the potential to improve soil health, but it really depends on successful implementation and realistic expectations. So one good example is cover crops. So cover crops provide, uh, their roots provide organic residues that help build soil organic carbon, and their above ground biomass also works to prevent erosion. But now think about a cover crop that's growing in, say, northern Minnesota versus one in a more temperate climate, say Missouri. Chances are that cover crop that's growing in the temperate climate, it's going to have a longer period of time to grow before going dormant in the winter and therefore make a bigger impact on soil health. At SHI, we work to quantify some of these changes using a small suite of measurements so folks can really monitor their progress following implementation of some of these different practices. So in addition to, you know, you mentioned some of the practices already, but in addition to practices such as the cover crops and reducing tillage, are there, um, you know, there are obviously some exciting new technologies that are helping scientists and farmers to understand and improve the conditions of the soil. So I was wondering what technologies you believe hold the most promise in making significant improvements. Yeah, well, being a soil microbiologist, I might be a little biased in my answer, but I'm really excited about the integration of some of these different DNA technologies. So for the past, I don't know, few decades, I would say, different soil biological measurements have kind of been limited to some of these broad scale measures of microbial activity or microbial biomass. But now we're really able to kind of dig into some of the different functions that these different microbes are providing. Everything from breaking down organic residues to cycling important nutrients like nitrogen in the soil all dependent on these different microbes. So what we're doing, working on right now is linking some of these functional genes to beneficial ecosystem services. And this is really kind of the holy grail. You know, we're able to quantify all these different things, but being able to translate them to beneficial services to the farmers and other stakeholders is really important. 
so yeah, I think it's an exciting time, a lot of data to dig through, but good things to come. Yeah, that is exciting to see all that data turn into action, hopefully for, you know, beneficial results in the near future. So that's awesome. So, you know, obviously there's this whole net zero movement. (laughs) And I was wondering if, in your opinion, the agriculture, especially the U.S. agricultural sector, is on track to achieve net zero C emissions by 2040. And, you know, what needs to be done or changed to accelerate those efforts? Sure. I mean, I think, first of all, it is a lofty goal, but I think we are on the right track for moving forward. I also think it's important not to forget all the good things that come with storing additional carbon in the ground, like building soil aggregates that can increase drought resilience or microbes that enhance mineralization and provide plant available nutrients. As far as what we what we need to be be doing and enhance, I think we need to give farmers the tools they need to be successful. So this is everything from making sure cover crop seeds are available to them at the right times to building peer to peer networks to share knowledge gain knowledge gains, um, and then even, you know, ways to measure and interpret the impacts of the new practices that they're implementing to give them an idea of where they are and where they can go. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds uh, vital, especially I, I think in the article, I'm not sure who it was that had talked about it, but measurement. Yeah, it's really important. And yeah, it, SHI, we had a big project a few years ago where we looked at a lot of different soil health measurements that were out there in public and private sectors and came up with kind of a a small suite of measurements that we really think can be used at scale. That actually brings to mind another question I had for you. Is the Soil Health Institute focused on doing work um, mainly in North America or are you guys more of a global organization? So right now we have active projects in the U.S. and Canada, but we have been... um, working with folks both in Europe and South America to try and get some more things going. So yeah, right now, that's our goal, you know, improve soil health everywhere. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I want to thank you again for speaking with me today, Dr. Riki. Obviously, soil health is a very important subject, and I'm glad to be able to pick your brain about it for a little bit. So thank you. Elizabeth Riki is a soil microbiome scientist at the Soil Health Institute. If you want to read more about regenerative agriculture, visit ift.org and search the March issue of Food Technology. We'll be back with more Omnivore in a moment, but first, this word from our sponsor. Introducing IFT's Product Development Bootcamp, a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Whether you're new to product development or need a refresh on the basics, IFT's Product Development Bootcamp offers a wealth of valuable insights, practical strategies, and real-world examples to take your product development to the next level. Learn more at ift.org slash bootcamp. Welcome back to the Best of Omnivore. I'm Bill McDowell. Growing up on the Caribbean island of St. Lucia, food safety executive Thea Morell never considered that her career path might lead to food science, much less a series of progressive leadership positions at some of the industry's largest food companies. But her study of the preservative properties of lactic acid bacteria as a pre-med student sparked a three-decade career as a food safety professional 
which has taken her from lab tech to C-suite influencer. When she sat down last April with Food Technology's science and technology editor, Julie Larson Brisher, she shared some key lessons from her journey, including how she learned to be comfortable as a change agent. Well, hi, Theo. I'm really glad we could catch up today and talk a little more about some of your industry insights and key learnings during your career as a food safety professional. Hi, Julie. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion today. That's great. Well, let's dive right in then. So this year marks the 30th anniversary of the Jack in the Box E. coli 0157H7 outbreak, for which for many people in the industry really marked the beginning of food safety science as a discipline in its own right. And your 30-year-plus career arc in food safety, from the lab to the C-suites of Kraft and Kellogg, really paralleled the emergence of that new food safety science discipline. So if you had to pick one or two key learnings from your career that you'd most like to share with like emerging leaders, what would they be? Thanks for the question. Um, As you can imagine, a 35-year career, I have a number of learnings. But if I had to pick one or two, the first one would be communication, clear communication. And clear communication is important for leaders across the board, but it becomes even more important for food safety leaders because we uh, chose, we have to convey technical information which we are comfortable with and we are used to, to non-technical audience across the board. The other advice I would be is, I would have would be get a mentor. And not a mentor that's very specific in your field, but what I have found to be important is to get a mentor outside your, your field of studies. So get somebody from legal, somebody from the business, somebody from sales, take a trip with the salespeople to understand what they're doing. Go along with the R&D team and get that mentorship going. You can have more than one. So that gives you a better understanding of how are the others thinking. Also gives you an opportunity to talk to those people to sell your message. It also creates for you a champion. So if you talk to the salesperson while you go on a sales trip and they get a better understanding on your day-to-day business, that creates a champion for you the next time you have a message going. So did you have any specific experience during your career that brought you to that key learning about clear communication? Because I've talked to other C-suite executives, particularly women, who would go into the boardroom and make their big scientific presentation and everyone would kind of sit around and look bored. Was that your experience? Unfortunately, yes. (laughs) But so I'll give you a specific example where that big aha came in and Again, it was because I had a mentor in the audience. He had, I had the opportunity for him to tell me about it. Most of the time, people don't tell you. You just walk away. But it was presenting to a um, supply chain organization. And I was presenting data that says how they have to change the way they work. In actual life, I was telling him he had to decrease his runtime, which you don't tell a supply chain person. But... When I was doing the presentation, I could see that I was losing the audience and I'm trying to get that message. 
that luckily for me, I went through. And at the end, the head of supply chain pulled me aside. He said, it's lucky for you I stayed. I go, what do you mean? He goes, I stayed because at the end of the day, you and I were on the same page. But when you started off, you did not start with the end in mind. So I was not following you and I was thinking you're going to waste my time. So his advice to me was always start with the end in mind, which I have used from my career and it's great advice. Yeah, that is great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know that you're always excited to talk and share about uh, food safety. And um, I'm wondering what excites you about the future of food safety? What kinds of progress do you think are on the horizon? So food safety to me is always exciting because it's every day is a new, a new challenge, a new work. Um, I think the, all the discipline has made a lot of progress in going from a function seen as compliance to more an enabler and a partner. Now, having said that, we still have a way to go. It's still in its infancy. So that excites me that we are starting to be invited to the table, be part of the discussion and going away from Food safety is only important after a recall or after an incident. We are at the early stage of prevention and we are being included in that. So that excites me. The other area is the technology and how fast it's developing. I don't know about you, but remember the days when we used to test and have to wait five days for a salmonella test. And if it was positive, another five days, which added to the fact that we were not helping the business. So having those rapid tests, and the excitement around that, the whole genome sequencing and how we can use that to help navigate and do investigation and help in further product development excites me. But if I was to say the biggest excitement for me in the future is data analytics. As you know, we are data rich, inside poor. In my experience, we collect a lot, a lot, a lot of data. But what we don't do well with it is take that data to drive inside. For example, I have, I do a lot of audits, or we all do a lot of audits, both internal, both regulatory. But the data is not in a format where I can look at the data and say, okay, here's what my data is telling me. I have a roof problem. Because as I go through all of my audits, this little thing keeps coming on, right? How can I use that data and go back to the stakeholders and say, here's what your audit is telling you? Not that you failed or you passed the audit, but drive that insight that they'll give them an opportunity as they do their planning and their investing to prioritize that. So that's one thing. I think when we look again at the recalls that we have, if we go back after the fact, they were all preventable, including the jack-in-the-box. Can you imagine all the signals we had that we see after? There are so many signals that we don't have the opportunity to take a look and connect the insight it's telling us. I believe data analytics, AI, if we can get it, where we take all that data, and it's not easy, but be able to read that data, get the insight from it, and drive action. That is so true. 
And speaking of exciting developments, I know you've been using your talents and sharing your insights as a member and leader on several industry, scientific, and nonprofit boards. Among them is one we've talked about called Helen's Daughters. It's headquartered on your home island of St. Lucia. Can you tell us a bit more about your work with this nonprofit and how you are sharing your food safety know-how? Thanks, Julie, for that question. And this is one of my passion right now. Because one of the things for me is having left the island, food safety is not top of mind because it's not documented. And if you talk to the island, it will say food safety is not an issue. And as I was looking for an area to help with the government or the area, I found this organization called Helen's Daughter. It's a nonprofit organization founded by a very young lady. And the reason why it became so exciting to me is she's developing those rural women in agriculture because rural women, they do the work, but they don't get the recognition. The men get the recognition and they're the ones doing the work. So her idea was how do we build that? But what excites me the most about it is that she was the only program that included food safety, which is a unique field. And she was opening to say, teach me food safety. And when I start teaching food safety, people, the farmers are like, what does it have to do with me? Uh, making food at the farm. But starting to teach the food safety in a format. So I start first with personal food safety. And I'll say something like, you shouldn't wash raw chicken. And they're like, what do you mean? That's just not acceptable. So how do I explain to them what that means in their area that they understand, which for me is good because I understand where they're coming from. And so far we have done food safety sessions, all virtual for 600 women. Right now, last year, I joined the board and take it to another level. So we are working on the strategic plan on how to create further capacity building, further on-site training, further technologies for them. And then right now I'm leading the fundraising because doing all this program, being a small organization, fundraising becomes critical. And how do we take them to the next level to be able to fundraise, to build those creative initiatives and to expand further? So it's a very exciting area to be. Oh, I'm I'm so excited for you. and. I always look, uh, when we talk here on video, I can see your beautiful painting in back of you of the beach, of your home beach. And uh, I just feel like that's a wonderful synergy that you've been able to be on that board and and help um, grow them and evolve uh, their food safety prowess, let's say. um, And I will just say, it's always a pleasure as always to talk with you, Theo, and thanks for carving out some time to share with us today on Omnivore. Um, I'm looking forward as always to our next chat. Thank you, Julie. It's been exciting. And thank you again for giving me the opportunity to talk to you about those initiatives. Theo Morell is a microbiologist and global food safety and quality executive With more than 35 years of experience in driving food safety implementation initiatives at Kraft Foods, Mondelez International, and Kellogg Company. You can read more of her in-depth conversation with Julie in the April issue of Food Technology.
crops that are more disease and drought resistant, cattle with a lighter environmental footprint. It's the holy grail of net zero food production. At the Innovative Genomics Institute, or IGI, scientists are using CRISPR gene editing technologies to make those very scenarios a reality. In her July conversation with Dr. Brad Ring-Eisen, food technology executive editor Mary Ellen Kuhn gets a close-up look at what IGI's work could mean for the food system. I'd like to start out by just asking you what it's like to work in an environment like at the Innovative Genomics Institute, where everyone is so highly intelligent. I'm kind of wondering what the conversations in the break room and around the water cooler are like. I wake up every day and I count myself lucky to be able to work with such amazing scientists that are really trying to change the world. That's the goal for, for the IGI. It's trying to change, change the world. And I can walk down the hall and I can talk to somebody who is trying to make a drought-resistant rice for farmers in South Asia, or I can go down and talk with somebody who's trying to cure sickle cell disease or other immune deficiencies using CRISPR. Well, it really does sound like such an amazing experience. And I know the Institute's work is very broad, as you mentioned, focusing on health, agriculture, climate change. I'm wondering if you could highlight a couple of key projects that are focused on engineering agricultural advances. The first project that I'd like to talk about is our initiative that's been funded by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. It's, uh, it's called the CZI. And they funded us on a project for carbon dioxide removal or carbon capture and sequestration by agricultural crops and soils. And this is a really exciting uh, project because we're looking at all of the touch points that um, are involved in the carbon cycle of, of crops and plants. You know, nature has the ability uh, to be able to, uh, to remove carbon dioxide from uh, from the atmosphere. This is they do this through photosynthesis, and so every crop that's planted in the world actually is already continuously absorbing um, CO two. Um, but the problem is, is that the natural carbon cycle um, really ends up in sort of a a net net um, zero. Like a, a lot of that carbon that's captured by the plant is then immediately released back into the atmosphere. Um, not immediately, but over the course of 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 uh, biodegradation. Of the, of the plant biomatter, um, it, it, it gets released back into the atmosphere. And so at the IGI, we're looking at the entire carbon cycle. We're looking at enhancing photosynthesis by enhancing the light reaction of photosynthesis, as well as the, the reactions inside the plant that build the biomass that could potentially help store some of that, some of that carbon. Then we're looking at the flow of carbon um, within the plant. And we're hoping with some of that extra carbon that we've stored, we're, we're hoping to enhance photosynthesis by 30 or 40%. So that extra carbon won't be taken away from the yields of the plant. We're hoping to engineer root structures and root architectures to be able to promote more carbon to be stored underground. The second application that I'd like to talk about is one that we just announced about a month ago. And that was the TED Audacious project. And one of the application areas is an agricultural application area where we would like to stop the, the methane emissions from cattle. And this is a really significant problem, upwards to 15% of all greenhouse gas emissions that, that, that are anthropogenic that come from humans are actually derived from the livestock uh, production um, and, and, and raising process. 
it's a big substantial problem. And I think we've got a pretty unique solution because we're looking at using Jennifer Doudna's CRISPR technology, the genome editing technology, and using it on the microorganisms, the bacteria and the archaea and the, the microbes that are present in the gut of the cow. It's called the rumen, the rumen. And we're looking at those organisms in the rumen, and we want to use CRISPR to go in and try to shut off the, the methane production that occurs in, the, in, in that gut, which results in the burping and, uh, and, and emissions of methane into the atmosphere. Well, thank you very much. It, it seems like it exemplifies the way that IGI projects are really so multifaceted and bringing together so many different experts. That, that's exactly what typifies uh, what goes on inside the IGI. We promote multidisciplinary work. Um, a lot of professors tend to just work in their laboratory on the problems that they are looking at and you know, sort of sort of right in front of them in their laboratory. At the IGI, the IGI wouldn't exist if it was just giving money to, to professors to just work alone in their labs. That's fascinating. Well, I want to ask you another question, something you that you referenced in the food tech article. I think you said that that we're going to see an explosion of products made with CRISPR gene editing technology in the next five years. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and what and what impact you anticipated having on the food system? I think within the next five years, there's going to be a lot on the health side of the house as well. But if we're if we're talking specifically about food systems, we're really on the cusp of, of uh, 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 I think, a food revolution. I really do truly believe that. You see the regulatory landscape. Um, the world's regulators are starting to come together now. The United States was actually a leader in this space to say that gene editing is more precise, it's more targeted than traditional crop breeding technologies where you're, you're crossing um, different species or different, uh, different variants and it's, it's in a, a relatively uncontrolled manner. CRISPR is a very precise tool that is able that allows you to change uh, the, the the specific gene that that you would like to affect. And so the uh, the United States regulators don't consider many many CRISPR uh, edited crops to be GMOs. Um, so I think that's a that's a way that can really expand the use and 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 product development. What might some of these crops be? Well, I know it's, at least inside the IGI, we're working on things like um, a drought tolerant rice. Right. With with climate change, you're seeing more and more uh, climactic variability um, there. It's going to the extremes. You're seeing more floods. You're seeing more droughts, more heat waves. So I think that in the short term, in those in that five year time period, I really think you're going to start to see crops that are using um, that have been edited with CRISPR to do any of a number of things, to use water more efficiently, to use nitrogen more efficiently, to be able to reduce the amount of synthetic nitrogen that, that has to be used. And look, synthetic nitrogen is one of the worst offenders for climate. It, and when you apply it to, to soils, a lot of times it stimulates production of nitrous oxide by soil microbes. And that nitrous oxide is a tremendously potent greenhouse gas. So if we can reduce synthetic nitrogen fertilizer use, that would be great. Well, that definitely makes sense. I, I understand that the Genomics Institute is very committed to focusing on the impact of these technologies. So what are the ethical issues around gene editing that keep you up at night, if any? Yeah, yeah. Did, you know, Jennifer founded the Institute and immediately put together what we call our public impact team. Our public impact team is is sort of a globally engaged uh, team that's looking at ways to help facilitate increasing the impact of what we do in the laboratory. 
Now, part of that, however, is ethics and, and looking at bioethics and bioethics. And so we have to go through approval procedures, both at our university to make sure that we are performing things that are safe. We have to go through quality assurance for any product that we make, that it has uh, the same nutritional benefits and, and, and that there's no toxicity and nothing that's, that's dangerous about the crop that's made. So what I'm trying to say is that as long as you there are procedures and protocols set up through those multiple institutional, through the federal governments, and then globally, there are regulations that are set up for us to abide by to ensure that our experiments are safe, number one. And then number two, um, that the products that we make are also then safe and, and are deemed safe that are there. So I guess what I'm saying is that we can't control what every bad actor out of the world may do with CRISPR. Okay. But what we can control is how we use the technology. And I, I personally believe that the impact of the technology can be so great and provide such positive good for society and the world and for humanity that we really need to use the technology. We can't just leave it on the bench. We can't just leave it on the shelf, but we need to use it in a very responsible and, and ethical way. Well, that certainly makes sense. Well, just to wrap things up kind of on the personal note, does it feel stressful or energizing to be entrusted with the responsibility of guiding an organization with really the potential to change the world in so many ways? I, I think it's energizing mostly. I mean, I, I'm a scientist. What I get excited about is science. Um, and it's energizing to be surrounded by people that are really, really trying to change the world, that are trying to, to, to use genome editing to help save lives and to be able to help provide food security, to be able to help provide income and, and, and food security for that farmer in, uh, in, in, in India or Bangladesh that might be threatened by, by rising temperatures or rising floodwaters. Um, it's energizing. It's exciting. Um, now, there is some pressure. I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail. I, 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 I really want this to be success to, to be successful. But that's where the team comes into play. It's not just all on my shoulders. And we have an amazing team of plant scientists, of you know, people that are innovating new new ways to edit crops and to edit human cells, and looking at at, at complex microbes that are responsible for a lot of these greenhouse gas emissions. We have some of the world leaders in these areas. And so it's not just on my shoulders. It really is a team effort. And I wouldn't rather be anywhere else than this amazing team that we have at the IGI. Brad Ring-Eisen is the executive director of the Innovative Genomics Institute at the University of California, Berkeley. Check out the July issue of Food Technology to read more about the work of the IGI and other pioneers in next-generation agriculture. This episode of Omnivore has been sponsored by IFT's new Product Development Bootcamp, a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Learn more at ift.org bootcamp. And that wraps up this episode of Omnivore. Thanks again to all our guests and my colleagues at Food Technology. Omnivore is produced and distributed by the Institute of Food Technologists. If you enjoyed today's show and want to learn more about Food Technology Magazine or how to join the conversation by becoming an IFT member, visit ift.org membership. 
For more in-depth discussion about innovation and the science of food, check out IFT's other podcast, SciDish, on the news and publications page of IFT.org. If you have comments or suggestions for future shows, just send us an email. The address is editors at IFT.org. For the entire team at Food Technology and IFT, I'm Bill McDowell. Thanks for listening, and join us again for our next episode. This is Omnivore.